from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll be reading verse 1 to verse 12 of Matthew. This is the account of, in the birth of the Lord Jesus, where the three, the wise men, we do not know how many, the wise men come to pay their homage to the Lord Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word. We again return our attention to Matthew chapter 2. And we hope to consider especially this question of these wise men as they came to Jerusalem in verse 2. Matthew chapter 2 verse 2. I'll read their question again. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. In in this one um, verse, we have elements of the three points that we're hoping to consider. the, The wisdom of these wise men as well as their faith. And then thirdly, the divinity of the king. Who is he who has his star in the east? Um, I don't know of any living human who has a star that can be called his. But the Lord Jesus did. 
And at the opening of Matthew um, chapter 1, we see the intention of Matthew in, in the rest of the book. He has one major intention, and that is to show Jesus' royal right to the kingship of Israel. And indeed, even as the book progresses, we see it's establishing Christ's royalty over the whole universe. In chapter 1, there is that genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then also His virgin birth. And so we have established that as a human, he is rightfully the king of the Jews, and he is a divine one as well. And now when we come to this chapter, um, we haven't read the full chapter, but we, we saw the element where we see the testimony of these kings with this very question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? There's the testimony of these men who come from far away, not from the Israelite background, but they understand there's a king of the Jews. And, and these men are brought into Matthew's records to establish Jesus' royal right to the kingship of Israel. And then... There is a testimony of Scripture, as we will see, because Herod himself summons the, the scribes and the chief priests. They look into God's Word, and they had the answer. They knew that it would be in Bethlehem. So we, we have the testimony of Scriptures. The irony in this passage here is that Herod himself becomes one to establish the certainty that Jesus is the king. He is so certain that this king has been born that he wants to put an end to him. If there weren't elements of that certainty, Herod would, would just completely um, disregard the whole venture. But no, he believes and so he acts. And we know what will happen. It's in the next portion where he sends his army to try to get rid of this king. And then there are three more prophecies in this chapter. There will be the prophecy um, that the Messiah would come forth out of Egypt. And then the, the prophecy that Rachel um, would lament the death of her children. That's, that's what is used when all the children um, do die because Herod kills every boy that was two years or younger. And then Matthew brings forth that lament of Rachel who would not be um, comforted. And then there is, at the very end of the chapter, the prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. There is a total of five more evidences in chapter 2 that the Lord Jesus is not only the promised Messiah, but the rightful King of Israel. And we, we begin looking today then to the wisdom of these wise men. Spurgeon says this about these wise men. He says, when wise men seek our King, they are wise indeed. They're not just wise men because it was, in essence, the category of life that they lived. We will see that this name is also the name Magi, which is actually speaking of a whole, a whole tribe and, and rank of people from Persia. But they were wise because of what they did in this very chapter. This is what true wisdom is. When you 
seek and find the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the distinct nature of wisdom. You can have all the wisdom in the world. You can have a double doctor of philosophy. You can scale the corporate ladder until there's nowhere else to go. You can write books. You can become renowned. You can be um, an inventor of many things. You can graduate from high school and get the best job in town. But if you do not have this wisdom, you are truly not wise. Wise wisdom is when you are wise unto salvation. It is when you seek the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what these men did. Now, let's, let's first note the, a little bit of the history of their wisdom by looking upon these wise men and who they were. And like I said, you could also translate the Magi. It is a, a name that is given to this group of men. They were known as um, wise men, and they were also called Magi. Um, they, they appear in the Median nation in the 7th century before Christ. Magi was a, a title of a Persian priestly caste so that all who would derive from them were, were part of this group called Magi. And they, and they gave themselves to the same things and to the same studies. They studied astronomy. And because of, of course, their pagan leanings, they also studied astrology. Astronomy would be the scientific Consideration of all the stars and the galaxies and the names of the planets, and they would study um, what was going on in the skies. But the astrology would be where they would put into it the whole occult element um, and try to see if they could understand things about the future. Um, they, they, they were learned men in the areas of mathematics, history, science, and, and agriculture. They were known to be monotheistic. And, and, and this is very possibly one big reason why they had an interest in Jehovah, which was the one God of Israel. Because in their minds, there was an element that that was the right thing, only one God. Um, although they, they were far and distant from Israel and, and God's word, so, so they were still mixed into things that were wrong, like sorcery. It is from their names, Magi, that the name magic is derived. But their knowledge and skill was so great that they became, in, in Persia and then later in Babylon, they became the very advisors of the king. When, when Nebuchadnezzar was conquering Judah, the chief magi at the time was with him, Nergal Sar Ezer. He was a magi and he was with Nebuchadnezzar at the time. When you read the book of Daniel, it is the satraps who were jealous of Daniel. You never hear anything of animosity between the magi and Daniel. And very likely because everything Daniel did was exactly what these very magi would have been astonished about and wanting to learn. And maybe along the line, the ones that were with Daniel may have heard of, of how to have only Jehovah as your God and about this Messiah that was promised all throughout the Old Testament. So especially, we'll see this in our second point about the faith of the wise men. 
the possible interconnections between Daniel and the Jews who were in exile and these very magi. Now, one, one thing that is, that is interesting um, are some passages in God's Word that can help us understand why it developed in the tradition certain things about these wise men. You may have heard sometimes them referred to as kings, the, the three wise kings or the three wise men. But why, why kings? Well, in Psalm 72, verse 10, and it's also from here that we get the idea of three. I'm not, not just from three gifts, but also because of these locations that are three um, Psalm 72.10, The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents, the kings of Sheba and Seba. So Tarshish, Sheba, Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve them. The, the early church looked at this passage and thought, well, here was a fulfillment of that, so maybe these men would have been kings. Another passage is Isaiah 60, verse 3. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. So these are passages that would explain why the church began the tradition that these wise men were also kings, and also why they would be three, because of the three places and later the three gifts. But we have no idea how many. They were certainly more than one, because it was plural, but it could have been two or three or more. But these wise men um, come then from this magi order of people from Persia. It influenced Babylon, the Babylon Empire and then later the Medo, Medo, Medo-Persian Empire. And even in the days that Jesus was born, it was a Roman Empire and these magi are still around. And they study and they, they listen to things. And now let's look at the process of their wisdom. Just think of what took place. They saw a star. We know that for sure. We don't know how, but they knew it proclaimed the birth of the king. And this is what I mean that we, they didn't know how. It could have been that they looked at an element of Scripture. Um, the only possible Scripture that could be what they had uh, awareness of would be Numbers twenty four seventeen, which reads, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. This is the one Old Testament prophecy that does speak of the Messiah regarding a star and the scepter um, rising would be the symbol of a king so that the star would be connected to a king this is what's traditionally thought to be the part of scripture that they had but it could have also been that God somehow revealed directly to them that the star that they had observed um, would be the communication of the birth of this king. We, we see in this very passage, at the very last verse, they being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. So it's very possible that they were in their place in the east and God warned them in a dream that that star was the birth of a king. So we don't understand exactly what. It could have been scripture. It could have been God directly speaking to them through a dream. But see, here's the process. They saw the star, 
They knew it proclaimed the birth of the king. They traveled far to seek him. Now, this is, this is very important. Because a lot of people say, well, I'm seeking, and I'm seeking, I'm seeking. These men weren't just seeking. They found him. They knew the star had to do with Christ, this king, and they sought after him. And that's the rest of the, pro- the process. They, they met him, and then they worshipped him. Now, the reason this is very emphatic is because it brings here the reality of what every believer is. What he has experienced. What has transpired in his heart. There's been a seeing the need for Christ and the awareness that he is a sinner. There's been a believing that Christ is the Savior. That he is, as we saw this morning, willing to save sinners. And so the seeking begins and the finding happens. The true seeking is always a finding kind of seeking. And then there is worshiping for the rest of our lives. And now this is what I mean. See, you do have people who say, well, I'm seeking. But they go to bed at night and they can sleep and they stop seeking through the night. Somehow they have enough calm to sleep. The next morning they forget to seek because they have to go to their jobs and do different things. And then they hear another sermon and it puts them on to seeking again. Maybe they do get the Bible to read and a word. Uh, one verse really prods their heart and they seek for a few moments, but before too long, they completely stop seeking and they go on with their lives. See, people who are seeking will keep seeking until they find. And this is what I mean. It's, it's first because of the very word seeking. Seeking in the Bible terms is a seeking unto fighting. If you're just seeking and you're really not so interested to find and you just kind of go on seeking, that's not what this word seeking means. That's more like wandering. It's another word. You can imagine little children, if you would ever play a game of hide and seek and you just stay there hiding forever because nobody's even caring to go seek you. Even little children don't do this. When you play hide-and-go-seek, your whole intention is to find your little hidden friends. And this is what the word seeking is here. And think of a soul who would be in the wilderness, and he's been there for two days without water. And so, of course, he is seeking water. And I tell you, he will be restless until he finds water. He will not be distracted by the little kinds of flowers that he sees in the wilderness. He's not going to stop to study them. He's not going to start to collect rocks from the desert as he seeks for water. Because he's dying. He's seeking for water and he will not cease until he finds. And he might die in the procedure, but he's not going to stop. Because see, seeking after water is a matter of life or death. That's what seeking is. Think of a man who is shipwrecked in the ocean. So he's swimming. He's swimming for his life and he's seeking after the shore. He will not be distracted by the little fish 
that are swimming under him to study what kinds they are. He, he will not stop to just gaze at the sun or the stars at night. He will keep swimming for his life. That's what seeking is. That's what these men do. They see the star. They find Herod. They see it in the Bible. They go out. God guides them through the light. You see their joy. When they saw the star, they rejoice with exceeding great joy. And then they come to the house. They find him and they bow. That's, that's the procedure of their wisdom. And that is wisdom unto salvation. And again, let me bring this reality. See, a person who can go home and sleep with ease and peace, he has heard the gospel, he has been warned that there is a heaven and there is a hell, he's been told, he understands, at least in his mind very clearly, that without Christ, condemnation is coming and hell is certain. He's been told that God is willing to save sinners and that Jesus, we see him in the words, setting his face like a flint toward Jerusalem to die for sinners. And still this soul is seeking and seeking with no resolution to find him. Biblically speaking, that person has not truly begun what biblically seeking is. It's just perhaps a human interest. At the most, it is like, like a general element of, of curiosity of the soul. But it's not what true seeking is. Now, let's contrast the wisdom of these men with the foolishness, the folly of Herod. We're going to do the same thing with Herod. We're going to look a little bit at the history, and then we're going to see the process of his foolishness. We saw the history or, or, or the background of the Magi, and then we saw the process of their wisdom. Let's look at the background of Herod. He, he was the son of one called Antipater. Um, Antipater was appointed by Rome to be procurator of Judea. And because he had a son called Herod, he appointed Herod to be the prefect of Galilee. So that's where the Herods um, became um, governors of. And, and after some success of that area, um, in 40 B.C., um, the emperor of Rome, Octavian, declared him to be king of the Jews. He was an Edomian, which means that he was an Edomite from the family of Esau. Now, to become more accepted to the Jews, because it was something completely full of tension to have an Edomite as a king of the Jews, but he ended up marrying a woman called Mary Ann. Mary Ann is spelled M-A-R-I-M-N-E, M-A-R-I-A-M-N-E, there's M-N that kind of tricky spelling. But this Mary Ann was from the Hasmonean house. The Hasmonean house had been a royal house in Israel 
who fought against the Seleucid Empire. And that was during the whole Greek Empire, just before Rome. And, and this, this family, the Hasmonean family, was so noble and so full of patriotism for Israel that they were able to even bring for Israel a certain time of independence before Rome came and conquered Israel and they lost their independence. But the Hasmonean um, families continued and this Mary Ann was from that family. So, so you can see how that would have a little bit endeared Herod to the Israelites, his wife. He had an element of, of clever dealings with the people to try to gain their, their approval. Um, Here's a list of some things that he did that were good. In 25 B.C., so 25 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a great famine in Israel, and he, he actually took gold from his very palace, melted it, and used it to provide food for the poor. When there was a harsh economic time after people had paid their taxes, he felt sorry for them, and he returned some of the tax money to the people. He built many places of entertainment, um, like theaters and racetracks, and perhaps the greatest thing he did that endeared the Jewish people to him was that he began the rebuilding of the temple. But even though he had these things that were clever and endeared some, he was a ruthless man. Maybe you have read the list before. I'm going to be quite brief here. But these are the things that he was known to have done that was ruthless. Maryam's very brother, Aristobulus, um, he was becoming very popular. And all of a sudden, um, he had an accidental drowning event um, in a pool that was actually known to be very shallow. So historically, it's believed that Herod caused his death. There were some officials who were accused falsely and executed under Herod's um, orders. He had two of his own sons executed upon suspicion that they were plotting against him, and it was not true. He was just not well informed. Later, he had his own wife executed, followed by her mother. And just before his own death, he had some of the elite of Jerusalem arrested and the orders were as soon as I die kill these people because this might be the only way there'll be some mourning in Jerusalem when I die and if I were to continue reading we would find that scriptural passage where he sent his soldiers to kill all the baby boys two years and younger which was probably the greatest authority of this ruthless man now beloved put together what we have here you see what God's word is doing he, God's word is bringing before us like a great antithesis a great contrast we have here these men who even though they come from crass paganism they are wise and bow before King Jesus and we have this man who is called the king of the Jews who has access to scripture and even believes in it but he is so foolish that he uses scripture to destroy the promised king. Isn't it astonishing the contrast? Now notice the process of his great folly. Um, he heard of the king's birth. He hated the news. 
But he searched the scriptures to be better informed, and then he used deception to locate where the child is to plan to kill it. And notice that in, in, the, in, the, in, in all of the events, how location is so important. It is the star that made him think the king of Judah has, has been born. So they know where Judah was. They knew where Jerusalem was. It was the capital. And they went to the palace very likely because they're using reason. Um, and some commentators don't think that the star pointed them to Jerusalem and to the palace. They just used their knowledge and thought if the king was born, let's go check in the capital and let's go check with the king. It might be his son for all they knew. So they use their wisdom. They arrive there. See, it's location. Location. They, they leave there. They go there asking for a city. They understand it's Bethlehem. And, but then it's this light that comes and further guides them where in Bethlehem. So location is very key in this passage, even in the heart of Herod. He wants to know where the baby was born. He takes them aside and says, you know, just come to me. Go go diligently. Find where the child is. And then tell me so that I can worship him too. And why was he troubled when he heard that the king was born? Because this king in his heart would dethrone him. See, he's thinking very secularly. He's thinking earthly. He's thinking if this is the promised king of the Jews, the people will obviously want him as other than me. So if I accept him, then I'm king no longer. If he begins to rule, he will expose that I'm an illegitimate king. Herod had power, but he would have to bow to Jesus' power. He had authority, but he would have to submit to Christ's authority. He had influence, but he would have to be influenced by Jesus. Now, even though all these things aren't even true, because Jesus would have absolutely no interest in Herod's crown or throne. But these things are absolutely true in the spiritual realm of things. And this is where you and I would fit the same category. See, we are not Herods and we don't have a palace and we don't have a throne. But we, in our nature, want to be king of our hearts and our lives. And what is conversion? It is for us to decrown ourselves, as it were, and dethrone and say, I am no longer king if this is the king of The Jews, if this is the king of the universe, I'll bow to him. I'll travel as far as I have to. I will keep seeking until I find him. And Lord Jesus, rule over my heart. I want to be influenced by thee. I want your authority. I want your crown to be the one that I honor. Not on me. I want to see it on thee. That's conversion. And Herod does not want to convert. So that's the wisdom of the wise men. Let's go to the faith of the wise men. We we will again see the faith of the wise men and then see the lack of faith of Herod. There's something very intricate here. Um, this Herod, he does not believe, but at the same time he does believe. It's a very scary thing to think who this man Herod is and how it reveals the reality of an unbelieving heart. Let's first look at the faith of the wise men. Um, and in doing this, we, we saw a little bit about the context of the wise men themselves. But let's think of the context of the East. Let's, let's put those wise men there in Persia and Babylon and realize a little something of what they would have known to some degree. Again, this, this is not to speculate, but it is to give 
the possibilities of what was there. Because like, if you don't hear much about this, you would think, well, they, they just came completely from a, from a completely dark place and pagan place. And you have to put some things together in terms of history. The East, especially where these people have very, had come from, was not devoid of testimony for Jehovah. Especially because God's people had resided there for 70 plus years. A great amount of people for 70 years. And even when those people came back from captivity, remember, some stayed back. And when you see books like Esther, that is showing the group of Israelites who stayed. Esther was one who stayed. That was after the time that some were able to come back. Because as soon as the Medo-Persians began to rule... Cyrus said the Israelites could go back. Esther is a queen in the Medo-Persian Empire. She didn't come back. And there's Mordecai. And then there are all those Jews who had to celebrate because they were so happy that God preserved their lives. See, there's thousands upon thousands of Jews all spread through that whole area. And when they went, they took their scriptures. So... So that area, that land, saw Genesis to at least Lamentations. Lamentations would have gotten there later because Lamentations was being written as they are going into exile. And Jeremiah is lamenting that Jerusalem was taken. But before too long, that's part of Scripture. And they have it there as well. Jeremiah and Lamentations. Isaiah. They have Moses' law. They have Genesis, they have Exodus, they have Numbers that we just read that spoke of of the star of Judah. And then when we read the book of Daniel, we see the astonishing influence that these Jewish men, especially Daniel and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were in the lives of kings. So if they were influences to the highest men, certainly that would have been talked about and seen. And you read the book of Daniel. He's right there with the magi of his time and the other soothsayers and wisdom men that would have been, the wise men that would have been advising the kings of that time. So Daniel was greatly used to influence Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then later Darius, who was the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. We read through the book of Esther and see how she would have had great influence under the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the book of Nehemiah was also under the Medo-Persian Empire. And who was Nehemiah? He was, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. So all of these Israelites would have had great influence. You, you can imagine how the glorious things that happened would have been talked about. Um, people would have wondered and considered things things that happened very openly so think for example of when Meshach Shadrach and Abednego did not bow there were thousands upon thousands of people all assembled to see that statue and bow and three men didn't and when they came out of the oven the fiery furnace alive don't you think that story would have gone wide and wild throughout the the Babylonian empire Who are these men? They are worshipers of Jehovah. What are their scriptures? Well, here are some copies that we found. 
And off would go the story and the message. And then when, when and, and, and then think of every, every other miracle. When, when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream about the statue, none of his wise men could interpret the dream or say what it was. Daniel knew the dream and the interpretation. All of those wise men, all of the magi, they would have recorded that reality. How did this man know that? And then Nebuchadnezzar had that other dream. None of his wise men could interpret what it was. At that time, he told them what the dream was. They, they couldn't say it. Daniel comes and he says, this is the dream. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the tree. You will be cut and put aside for seven years. And so I pray that, that what happens to this dream is really to your enemies. And why don't you go and repent, O king? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. After a little while, he does boast of how glorious um, Babylon was that he had constructed for his glory by his might. He has a mind that's deranged. He thinks he's an animal. They think he's an animal. They treat him that way. They're scared of him probably. And they lock him out in the wild. He is chained to the stump of a tree for seven years. Don't you think stories like that would have gone wild through Babylon? And the whole connection would be Daniel told us that this would happen. And maybe even the hope, let's wait seven years. That was part of the story. That was part of the dream. Seven years go by, his reason comes back, and he gives glory to the God of Israel. And he's back to his glory He's back to his palace. We have the very words of of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. These stories would have gone far and wide. The Magi would have been the class of people just on the edge of their chairs thinking, whatever comes out of the scriptures of these people, we need to digest, we need to give ourselves to. We've never heard of something so majestic, so glorious. And then it just keeps adding. From the very evening that the Babylonian Empire passed on to the Middle Persian, there was Belshazzar in that big banquet, and they were celebrating with the very cups from the temple. Belshazzar had crossed the line that none of the other kings had done, that at least we know recorded. He got those vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had brought from the temple, and Belshazzar dared to use them in a feast to his own gods. And then the writing on the wall appeared. Remember, boys and girls, that writing on the wall? All they saw were the fingers that wrote many, many tekel u parsing, which means you have been, your, your kingdom has been numbered and it has been ended. You have been weighed at the balance and you have been found wanting. Your kingdom will be divided to the Medes and the Persians. It was God giving the news to the king, and that very evening, the Medo-Persian Empire broke into Babylon and Belshazzar was killed. And you can imagine all the people thinking, Daniel was right. This is astonishing. They must have hung at every word that Daniel would say from there on. And then Daniel is there under Darius. They are jealous of him They make that law that whoever prays to any god will go to the lions. Daniel prays. He goes to the lions. The next day, he's delivered alive. Now, the whole Medo-Persian Empire 
See, the Babylonian had ended. And and from one to the next, there's this miracle being exposed. And the Babylonian Empire, now for the rest of its history, knows of a Daniel who is not eaten by by the lions. God protects the friends from fire and protects Daniel from the lions. See, all of these things are happening there in the land of these wise men. Yes, many years before Jesus came, But it went from generation to generation. And when this group of wise men saw the star, they connected. They continued faithful to what they had been listening. And they said, let's go find him. And see, this is the faith element. They saw the star, they believed. They went to Jerusalem and went to Herod. What did they look for? They looked for where, where to go. They, they brought the scriptures and said, it will be Bethlehem. What did these men do? They believed. And they went to Bethlehem and found King Jesus and bowed before him. It was faith that led them. Not just wisdom, but faith. This is why wisdom and faith are so connected. When you have faith, that is wisdom. And when you're truly wise, you will wise into salvation. And you can only be wise into salvation with faith. So you see how the faith and the wisdom of the wise men go hand in hand. And that faith led them to Jesus. Now let's contrast this faith with Herod's lack of faith. Now beloved, notice here, this this is very important. We can speak of the faith of these magi. And we can speak of the lack of faith of Herod. We can speak of the belief of the wise men. But we can, and we can speak, this is how it is, kind of confusing, but we can speak of the belief of Herod. To believe is different from to have faith. To have faith is always more than just believing. And this is what I mean. I'm going back to what I said about the irony here. Because when these men asked where the king was to be born, Herod went to the scriptures. Of all things, he believed that what was in the Bible would be true. When the scribes and the chief priests come and they say in Bethlehem and then they, they, they bring what in essence is Micah 5.2 and a little portion of 2 Samuel 5.2 and said, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. But see, when this was said in the hearts of these wise men, they believe that it's there, but in their hearts they have trust in the direction of Christ Herod believes it is there but he has no trust he has no confidence and we could say he has no faith he has belief but he has no faith and there's a danger here it shows that an unbeliever armed with the scriptures can even be dangerous you see what's happening Herod has the Bible Does it make him a good man? No, it makes him worse. He uses the Bible to find out where Jesus is because he wants to kill him. 
He makes use of God's revelation that he believes to be true, but he has no faith in God and he has no trust in God. But he does believe what God is saying is true. And so he follows through and sends the army to kill the little baby boys. He's making use of God's word to destroy the God of the word. If he can, it's what he's trying. That's what Satan does. Herod is like a picture of Satan. He will use God to kill God. And that, beloved, is a very frightful picture of an unbeliever. It is very dangerous, beloved, to be an unbeliever. We, we live in days and have lived in days where America was to a degree like Christian and a lot of unbelievers were very respectable people. And it creates in the minds of people that to be an unbeliever is not so bad. But when someone's an unbeliever, it means that his heart is not ruled by the grace of God. And there is no telling where that soul can go. Because in many ways, he's at the mercy of Satan. If, if God will allow, Satan will take that man as far as being like a Judas. But if God does not allow, he can remain respectable. But there's no guarantees. And this is an... Herod before us. Look what Spurgeon says about Herod. He says, Herod among priests and scribes is Herod still. Some men may become well instructed in their Bibles and yet be all the worse for what they have discovered. Like Herod, they make ill use of what they learn or like these scribes, they may know much about the Lord Jesus and yet have no heart towards Him. Just one little word about these scribes and these Pharisees, these chief priests. From, did you notice from that little connection that Spurgeon gave? We won't have time to go all through here, but right here there's, there's a whole big dimension. That in many ways, this is where many religious people are. These scribes and priests went to the Bible. They said it was Bethlehem. They believed as well, in essence, that's what their, that's what, that was their answer. But we don't hear of them going with those wise men. Maybe some went and the text is not writing. We don't know. But we do sense a certain indifference in their hearts. It's showing one other dimension. Not every unbeliever is the same. Some unbelievers are respectable. Some unbelievers are like Herod. Some unbelievers are like Gamaliel, like we have seen in Acts. Some are like the Sadducees, ready to kill the apostles. These unbelievers, chief priests and scribes, sound a little bit like a mixture of Gamaliel and the indifference of of many who, they hear things that are life or death issues, but they seem like they're unmoved. That's who these are. So we see the faith of the wise men and the faith of, and the lack of faith of Herod. But let us now conclude with the last point, the divinity of the king. Beloved, all of these things that we've been seeing are driving us to this very reality. The star that guided these men in their wisdom, they were wise to follow and to understand that speaks of the king. Let us, let us um, go to Jerusalem and then the star appears and it seems like there is where there was a miracle where the star would have guided them to Bethlehem or where in Bethlehem the child was and they were, 
They were full of faith. They were full of wisdom. All the while, there's this reality of the divinity of that baby, Jesus. He's not just a human baby like all of us have all been human babies. He is divine as well. Because like we saw in the question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. This is a baby who has a star. And, and let us put together this morning's sermon with this one. The shepherds had a sign. It was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes that would be lying in a manger. That would be the baby in Bethlehem. And these wise men have a star that goes before them till it came and stood over where the child was. And who told the shepherds that the baby would be in swaddling clothes were angels. So this little baby has angels at his service and stars too. This is divinity in a child where heaven bows in adoration to this king. Angels and stars fulfill his purpose and bring people to visit him. And these elements of angels and stars serve as heralds to this tiny king. They call um, from near, the shepherds, and they call from far, the wise men, to come in honor of the king of the world. We see also his divinity um, in the providence of God surrounding his birth. Just, just very briefly, in, in the guidance, as, as we've been seeing, using the star, using scriptures, whatever these wise men would have known that made them know that the star would be this communication, it was God guiding, it was God declaring and helping them. And then you see God's provision. Especially in this, you know the story that because Herod's coming, um, an angel will appear to Joseph and say that they will come for the child. Look, it says in verse 13, um, Arise and take your young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. We've already seen how destitute this family was. They... they um, they were a poor family. He was a carpenter. They had just traveled. They, they didn't have much money. They found a manger to be a crib for their baby. When Jesus is circumcised and, they, and Mary has to do her, her vows, they, they don't use a lamb. They use um, um, the, the, the pigeon, which would be what a poor person offers. But now these wise men come and they offer gold and myrrh and frankincense. And all of a sudden, they have, in essence, everything they need to go into exile, into Egypt. God is providing. And with this, of course, He is protecting. He is a human baby. He needs divine protection. But He's a divine baby. Because the stars and angels are at His service. And He is the Son of God. In conclusion, beloved... Where do you stand? Jesus has a royal right to kingship. Is he a king of your heart willingly? I say that because he is the king of your heart. Whether you like it or not, he is king. It is not our will that determines that. But do you bow to him?
as these wise men did. Have you sought him? Have you found him? Have you bowed in worship and adoration? Do you trust him? Do you seek him with this heart that says, I will seek thee, O Lord, until I find thee, because I cannot bear to live without thee. May may God place in our hearts, not just this Christmas day, but throughout all our lives, this wise men-like wisdom, where we hear of him, know of him, we spend our whole life seeking him, if it were necessary, to find him. The promise is that if you seek him, you will find him. It should never take too long. If you're truly seeking, you will find him soon. And the life of a believer, if you're a believer already and you found him, is that of seeing him and worshiping him for the rest of your life. And that's what we're doing here. That's what brings us to church. It's one more moment to worship him together corporately. May that be um, a desire of your heart. May it be young people that never it would be for anyone here with the heart of, oh, do we need to go to church again? You don't see that kind of attitude in these wise men to go and find Jesus and worship him. May it be our, our heart's desire to bow with willingness to him. And in our homes as well, in our family worship, in private worship, that you would alone be bowing before Jesus, reading the word, absorbing the word, letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you. And in your very private worship, also coming and bowing like these wise men as after you read the word. And he will be glorified. As we saw this morning, it will be all for the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we pray that Thou would give, Lord, this wisdom to each and every one of us. Thou knowest, Lord, where each is in terms of even having an interest to seek or having found or in worship or as a believer who spends the rest of our lives in awe of who Thou art and worshiping Thee. Help us, Lord, to to improve upon thy, uh, what thou hast taught us in thy word. And Lord, the souls that have not yet begun to seek after Jesus, may thy word both preached this morning and today bring a holy unrest that they would be like a soul in the wilderness that needs water and will not be distracted by the world round about it until he finds it and that he would have this yearning and thirst for Christ and will not cease until he finds Jesus and is saved. We pray, O Lord, that thou would bless us this week. We ask that thou would go before us into the new year and that thou, Lord, would be glorified in our lives, in each of our lives. We thank thee, Lord, again for blessing us with a full year in this last Lord's Day of 2022. We thank thee, Lord, for the health that thou hast given, the strength that thou hast given. And as we hope to meet on on Saturday evening in our New Year's Eve service, 
Help us, Lord, throughout this week to contemplate the many blessings that Thou hast given throughout this week, week, month, year. And in all the challenges and all afflictions, Lord, we, we pray that Thou would give us also a great sense of how, how we need Thee, how Thou hast been there for us and has helped. And those, Lord, who are maybe in afflictions right now, that Thou would be there sustaining and blessing and providing for each of them. We ask all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.